As we start this morning, I want to begin with a, a little bit of a reminder. We started called 10, which has to do with the Ten Commandments. And if you remember, how many sermons are in the series? 11. <laughs> because, uh, now we didn't add a commandment. Uh, that would be pretty cool, but we didn't do that. What we did is we went back and we looked at Jesus saying that to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love your neighbors yourself, uh, the whole law and prophets hang on these two. And what we said from the very beginning is God has this love relationship with us. And because we have this love relationship with God, our obedience to God is not based out of trying to earn his favor, trying to earn his love, trying to earn, his, his, uh, earn our way into heaven. Our obedience is based on our love for God. And we, we did some comparisons. We, we talked about how we, we respond differently. You know, I don't obey traffic laws out of love, okay? I don't. Uh, but I do. There are things that I do um, that are based purely on love. Now, Jackie always said that when she was growing up, I picked on her a lot, okay? All right? Now, and, and I, 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 I never did that, but let me pick on her now. Okay, she came home for the weekend. This is a wonderful thing for us because we get a chance to spend some time with her, and that's pretty cool. Okay, she came home yesterday. It was a little bit of a long day with uh, Bob Christian's memorial service, and, and it was a taxing day in many ways, not just because of the hours, but because of everything that was involved in that memorial service and how close Bob was to all of us and, and how close his family is to us. And so it was a very taxing day. So on my way home, after we get everything wrapped up here, I get a text message from my daughter that asked me to pick up steak and potatoes for supper. Now, I gotta be, I'll be honest with you now because it's, it's in hindsight. It's in the rearview mirror. I didn't want to pick up steak and potatoes. As a matter of fact, I even said, are you sure we could go out to eat? But, no, she wanted steak and potatoes. And, and then this, this is, I'm going to tell you the reason I did it. Because okay, I, I don't mind cooking the steak. I don't, I don't mind all that. And it's kind of a family thing because, you know, I cook the steaks and Nancy cooks, Jackie cooks the other stuff and Nancy cleans the kitchen. So it's kind of a, a whole, whole process, okay, a family deal. But I was tired. Nancy asked me why I was doing it. This, this is what I said. If Jackie wants it, then I want it. Jackie wants it, then I want it. It was based on a love relationship. I could have said no. Too tired, don't want to do that. But there are things that we do that are based purely on our love relationship. And when we look at the Ten Commandments, we need to understand that we are not obeying the Ten Commandments in order to get God's stamp of approval. We're not obeying the Ten Commandments in order to, to impress God and to earn brownie points with Him. We're doing that because God's saying, hey, listen, I'm telling you how I want you to respond to me and how I want you to respond to other people. This is based on a love relationship you have with me, and through that relationship, it's based on the love that you're to have for other people. With that in mind, that's where we begin today with this relationship. If you remember, the first commandment was, you're not to have any other gods before me. It was an exclusive relationship. God is the only one who's worthy of our worship. There really are no other gods anyway, and so worshiping them would be absolutely foolish. But God says, I want your full worship. The second commandment we're going to hit today deals with idols. Now, when we see this, we immediately say, what's that have to do with me? I don't have any idols 
There are no little statues in my house that I bow down to. None of this stuff actually is relevant in my life. So why even worry about talking about this this thing called an idol? For idols, basically, are typically representations of gods or goddesses in the form of wood or stone or cast from metal that, that are used in the worship of a deity. And we look at that and we go, what is that? How does that apply to me? And I hope that when we come through this, you're actually going to see how this command actually does apply in your life. So let's take a look at it together. Exodus chapter 20. We've been there for a couple, since last week. I told you to go ahead and mark that. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look here at the second commandment that God gives and, and break it down a little bit so we have a, a little more understanding. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And this is what God's word says. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands." All right, let's break this down a little bit because there are three chunks in here that I want us to consider. And the first chunk is the command itself. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or above or earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down and worship them. Now, our first thing is, you know, okay, we're thinking about images. Does this mean that what God is doing is forbidding art, paintings, sculptures, anything like that? And the answer is no. I mean, if you go to my house, um, you will see there, there are a few paintings on the wall. Uh, one, I, there's a painting of a zebra on the wall. Um, there's a painting of a couple of the elephants with a tree on the wall. And when you see those things, you don't walk in and go, you know, I, 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 think, I think Pastor Jimmy is worshiping zebras. I think, he, you know, maybe, maybe he's got, a, uh, you know, a, an elephant idol. You'll, even, you'll also find little carvings. We've got rhinos and elephants and, and giraffe, things like that. God, God is not saying that at all. This is, this is not about artwork. The children of Israel weren't forbidden to make images as art. That was not what he was doing. Instead, they were commanded not to make these things in order to bow down and worship them. In other words, the command is pretty simple here. We don't want to take it and, and go directions with it that it's not intended. It's very simple, very straightforward. Now, sadly, we see from Exodus 32, we're not going to look there right now, but in Exodus 32, remember uh, these commands that are given in Exodus chapter 20, God's giving these commands verbally, okay? This is before they were etched onto the stone tablets and Moses brought them down the mountain. But if you flip over to chapter 32, we're not going to read it there, but I do want to encourage you to read chapter 32 because it's pretty cool. You need to go check out chapter 32. Write that down, circle it, go, okay, 32 this afternoon. I want to go read that. But I'll tell you just a little bit of what happens. This is when Moses comes down the mountain and he's got the stone tablets. And he gets down and he hears all this noise going on in the camp. And he goes, is that the sound of war? Are we going to war? No, they were partying down there. And when he gets down there, what does he find? God, now remember, God, they're not ignorant. They knew this command not to make idols. So he comes down the mountain, and what does he find? There is a golden calf. 
a golden calf. And the people are worshiping the golden calf. It, it, was, it was like one of the gods being worshipped in Egypt. And they had made this idol and begun to worship it. It's as if they have forgotten everything. Forgotten the freedom through the, the plagues in Egypt, forgotten the Red Sea, forgotten the manna, forgotten the quail, forgotten the water from the rock, forgotten all of that, forgotten, forgotten that God came and spoke to them with fire and smoke and and a mountain quaking. God spoke to them and says, don't make any idols. Like they forgot it all. It's pretty cool. Again, read chapter 32. They even say, you know, this fellow Moses, like they didn't even know him, like he was some stranger in their midst. Now, here's this, this makes matters worse because Moses' brother Aaron, who was the priest, Moses' brother Aaron was actually the one who made the idol. Now, I, I'm not sure of his, his complete motivation here, Because he made the idol, but then he also made an altar to the Lord right there in front of it. This is Moses' brother. You can imagine, this didn't sit too well with either Moses or God. I'll let you finish reading chapter 32 in here. But that that is an amazing, amazing chapter. Especially when you find out, I won't tell you what he said. But when Moses asked Aaron, hey, how did that idol get here? And then you go and look and see what Aaron actually said back to him. But I'll let you read that this afternoon. It's, it's pretty interesting if you've never read it before. Okay, so that's the command. Don't make uh, an idol and, and, and bow down and worship it. Okay, the reason for that, we're given in the scripture. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That may be sort of a representation of the calf idol right there. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. When we hear the word jealous, we immediately give it a negative connotation. If someone's jealous of someone else, that's usually not a good thing. In the Hebrew, the word jealous has the meaning of intense zeal or great fervor over something that is precious. Let me repeat that. Intense zeal or great fervor over something that is precious. In fact, some translators will translate the word jealous as zealous. So so jealous here is a neutral word. In other words, jealousy can be good, it can be bad based on the context of the word. But here, it means that God is highly protective over something that is precious to him. What? Actually, two things. First, the people. He was highly protective over the people. He loved them. He'd entered into covenant with them. He wanted the best for them. And so God was jealous over them. He did not want them giving their affection, their attention to worthless idols. Secondly, God was jealous for his name. Now, we're going to look a little more at that next week, but a person's name represented their character, who they were, their essence. And God was jealous 
over his name. He, didn't, he, he did not want to share his glory with others. In other words, God didn't want his name to be smeared among the people. And if the people lived in rebellion after they said, hey, I worship God, but they lived like they didn't worship God, then that ran God's name into the mud, and, and they didn't want that. And listen, that's something we need to hear today too. If we're going to stand up and say, hey, I follow Jesus, then our lives need to indicate we do follow Jesus. Otherwise, we not only bring criticism on ourselves, we also can bring criticism on Jesus' church and Jesus himself. Uh, that's, a, that's a side note. So let me summarize this. God's jealousy is zeal for his people and for his holy name. And next week we'll focus a little bit more on that last portion. Now, here's the result. Punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, we read that and we go, that is simply not fair. Punishing the generations to come because of the sins of the father, because of the sins of the parent, what, what does all this mean? Well, if there, there are a couple of, depending on the context, you, and, you, and you need to look at the context of it, there are a few places in Scripture here, Deuteronomy 5, 9, and Exodus 34, 6, and 7, that say pretty much the same thing. But if you look in Ezekiel eighteen ten, or you look in Deuteronomy 24, 16, then what we read there is that the children aren't to pay the penalty for the parents or the father's sin. Now, which is it? Is God confused? No. We have to look a little at the context. And, and I can't get too deeply into this because, I mean, stuff is really... Uh, I, you, can, you can study some of this on your own, but let me kind of give you... that. There's a big difference in those two references. First of all, the one that we're reading here has to, has to do with a covenant relationship, Right? Okay, the other one has to do, when it says the the children shouldn't pay for the parents' sins, that has to do with criminal activity, uh, stealing, killing, things like that. The children shouldn't pay the price for what their parents have done, although admittedly there's always a price to pay for any kind of sin, and unfortunately it goes beyond just the person. And so what we're talking about here is a covenant relationship. And it says that here... The sons, the children, are going to end up paying the price for the sins of the parents, for the father especially, because the father is considered in the scripture the head of the home, and therefore he is responsible for the spiritual welfare of his family. Now we can can look at scripture and we can argue about headship and all those fun things, go ahead and do that, but... I want to just tell you what Scripture says. Scripture says that the husband is to be the head, okay? That does not mean he's a dictator. It does not mean he's inconsiderate. It does not mean he abuses his wife or abuses his children. It simply means that God is going to look to him and say, you are responsible for the spiritual leadership of your home. Now, here in the Scripture, as we look at this, and it says that the children are going to pay the price. 
When the father rejects the covenant with God, rejects his covenantal responsibilities, and lives in rebellion, then what is he doing? He's leading his children to live in rebellion. And what are they going to do? They're going to lead their children to live in rebellion. And what are they going to do? They're going to lead their children to live in rebellion. You can see it very clearly how the sins of the parents as we live in rebellion against God, as we break the covenant relationship, how, how it can be passed on from generation to generation. Some of you know this. You know families like this. And you can argue, oh, is that a generational curse? You, you argue all this stuff you want to. Here, I'm just here to tell you this. If parents, especially fathers, live in rebellion to the covenant that they have with God, their children are going to pay the price. And not just their children, but their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and the generations after that. In short, the way God's people live and the choices that they make affect not only themselves, but they also affect generations to come. We need to hear this. I especially want to say, dads, I want to put the onus on you right now. Although moms, you're responsible as well, especially if you're a single mom. But if you're a dad, if you've got children, a wife, and and you've got children, do not forsake your role as a spiritual leader of your home to set the spiritual pace for your home because your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren will pay the price if you don't. Hear that. It's so important for us to understand. There's some good news here because did did you notice how this is written? It said that that God's going to punish the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commandments. You need to hear this. Because some of you have messed up royally. And you're sitting here and you heard that and you are facing some really deep, deep conviction that you have ruined your family. I'm here to tell you there's a new start. There's a new beginning that God will give you. And the power of living in covenant with God is greater and can overcome much of the power of living in sin. I don't care where you are. I don't care how late it is in life. You can start now to begin to bless generations to come rather than cursing them with your own life. Start today. Okay, now that we understand the command a little bit, what do we do with this? I said a couple of weeks ago that we are not under law, we're under grace. So how as people under grace are we to apply this command in our lives? Does it have any relevance for us? Well, if we fast forward to the New Testament, just a couple of verses from the New Testament to help us put this in a little more perspective. The Apostle Paul warns believers in the church in Corinth, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee, run from the worship of idols. Second, John, closest to Jesus of all the disciples, John wrote, Dear children, 
Keep yourselves from idols. So here in the New Testament, we have reference to idols. And idolatry certainly was an issue in their time. In New Testament time, there were idols everywhere. Corinth had a ton of idols. They had temples. They had all this false god stuff going on. It it was all over the place. As a matter of fact, the Jews were, in essence, the only group that worshipped one god. But if you went to other places, when Paul went to Athens, for instance, there were statues lined up to the various gods because, see, they were covering their bases. They were like, well, you know, we don't want to make any of them mad, so we'll honor all of them. And just, just in case we miss somebody, you know, we've got a tomb of the unknown soldier. They had a statue to the unknown god. Okay, so they were trying to cover all the bases. They didn't, they didn't want to get anybody upset. We're told to flee from that, to run from that, to get as far away as possible from that. Now, Paul will acknowledge that the idols themselves are nothing. Okay? They're nothing. Matter of fact, we find that in the Psalms as well. They're nothing. They're blocks of wood. They're chunks of stone. They're pieces of metal that have been crafted by the hands of men that people bow down to. And they're nothing. They're empty. The Apostle Paul helps us to understand it's not just the emptiness of worship. You're inviting something else into your life if there are idols in your life. And worshiping idols, in fact, a person was and is worshiping demons. Now, how do we know that? Because Paul tells us this. 1 Corinthians, remember he's already told them to flee idolatry, to run away from the worship of idols. This is what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. In other words, you're right. That idol is no different than this speaker here, no different than this podium here, no different than this book here. It has no life in itself, but behind that, behind that is the demonic, a drawing away from God. Remember last week our layman's definition of, of a God. A God is anything that has captured your heart, dominates your thoughts, and ultimately affects your decision. And so when a person acknowledges a, an idol as a God, that idol, that God, or the demon behind it, has captured their hearts, dominates their thoughts, and ultimately affects all their decisions. Idols are both subtle and dangerous. We don't have idols. Now, there are homes in the United States that do have idols. Literally, literal idols. You may go into the home of a person of a particular religion and they have a shrine that will be set up and in that shrine is a small statuette of the, a representation of their god, an idol. And they will actually have a worship service, lighting candles, doing various prayers and things like that around that shrine. That sounds really foreign, really alien to us. 
And so we look at that and we go, I don't have that problem. There's no shrine in my house. Okay, I may have a picture of a, you know, actor up here or an actress over here. Uh, you know, that usually happens in your teenage years. Uh, and we actually call them idols, which sounds a little dangerous from the start. But what we need to understand is an idol is anything in our lives that substitutes for God. Anything you find more joy in, anything you put more trust in, anything that brings you deeper satisfaction, that is modern-day idolatry. This is your false God. This is your idol. God wants you to rid yourselves, to run from any idols that are in your lives because idols are a poor substitute for the living God. What they offer... What they offer for us is some sense of peace, some sense of joy, some sense of satisfaction, some sense of contentment, some sense of fulfillment. And we may get a taste of that. But they will ultimately disappoint. Only God fully satisfies our need. But these these idols and the demon or demons, that are behind them, are ultimately trying to disrupt and destroy your relationship with God. Remember, Satan, the thief, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan's job description, okay? Steal, kill, and destroy. That's what idols do in our lives. But again, you go, but I don't have any idols. And it's true that your idol is probably not a golden calf. So what is it? Or what could it be? You see, idols, most often for us, are good things misused. What can they be? An idol can be money. And you know people who pursue money and the things that money can buy with a great zeal. Idols can be our possessions, a house, car, clothing. Idols can be our retirement. We've got this vision in our minds of retirement and everything we do in life moves us towards that end. An idol can be your family. An idol can be a hobby, an activity in your life. There are a lot of people around here who's who, you know, they have a ritual that's just as much and just as true as any ritual we have here. Uh, And their idol is a golf course. Their idol is a boat out on the lake. Their idol is their leisure time, their relaxation. Idols can be good things. Churches can become idols. Your religion, your practices, they can become idols. Lots of things can be idols for us. They don't have to be bad things. They can be good things. The Bible says that God gives us all things for our enjoyment. But if we find greater joy in those things 
greater satisfaction in those things, greater peace in those things than we find in God, it has become an idol for us. And I can guarantee you that for each person here, because we're all different, we've all had different experiences, we all are at different levels of income, we're all, everybody's different, the idols in this room would be completely different. How do you discover these idols? The first way is to take some time to pull away, to get quiet. I know you go, get quiet. When is there ever any quiet? You've got to make the time. And go sit down and honestly just ask God with a blank sheet of paper, what are my idols? What, where do I find? What, what gives me satisfaction? What gives me fulfillment? What do I, what do I wake up in the morning think about, thinking about and go to bed at night thinking about? What is it that dominates my thinking? What is it that has captured my heart? What is it that governs my decisions? And just ask God to reveal them to you. Don't, don't come ask me. I don't know you anywhere near as well as God does. And then be open during the day to say, God, show me my idols, show me my idols, show me my idols. And, and God will do that. God will answer that prayer. But some of you may wish you'd never prayed it. Because now you ask, what do I have to do now? <laughs> now that I know I've got this idol in my life, now that I know I've got this, this God substitute in my life, what do I do? You go straight back to what Paul and John both told us to do. Get out of there. Whatever it takes, walk away from that idol. And that's going to be the hard part. There's some people that have had to make decisions in their lives to walk away from things that weren't bad things at all. But things that began to dominate their lives and became idols for them. And they had to walk away. And so if you ask God, be ready for the answer, but also be ready to respond. Because as long as we have idols set up in our lives, our relationship with God will never be what it could be. And we will never find our full satisfaction, full peace, full joy in Him. I want you to hear me. God is jealous for you. God is jealous for you. And you go, Oh, is that a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. I mean, can you imagine? I, I've never been uh, a really, I know it's going to shock you, but I was never the handsome, popular, chiseled kind of guy. I was never that guy. Okay, so I never had, like, girls chasing me. Um, I, it just wasn't my thing. I never, I never I, but I always imagine what it would be like if this girl over here were jealous of that girl, and that was jealous of this girl because they all like me. And God says, I'm jealous over you. 
You see, I called you. I, I set you apart. I sent my son to die for you. I want you. I don't want, I don't want to share you with idols. I want to share you with things that are not going to bring you satisfaction. I'm jealous for you. And instead of making you angry, that ought to make you shout. God's jealous over you. And God is also jealous over his name. You see, he's jealous over his glory. He, he created you. He, he sustained you. He, he died. He sent his son to die for you on Calvary's cross. And when we choose something else over him, then we're doing exactly what Aaron did. We're building an idol, a golden calf, right beside the altar of God. And we're robbing God of the glory that is due his name. Idolatry is not simply an issue with a physical object. Idolatry is a matter of the heart. Jesus said, whatever you value, that's where your heart's going to be. And so the question you need to ask this morning is, what is it that I value most? For that is your God. And I pray it is not an idol. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, its truth, its power its ability to both comfort and convict. And I pray, Lord, it'll do its work this morning. That if there are those who need to enter into this relationship with you, you who love them, you who, who, who call them, you who have sent your son to die on their behalf, Father, I pray that, that there won't be anything that will keep them from embracing that relationship, from entering into that relationship with you, Father, today. Pray, Lord, if they need to come and, and just come before you and confess that they're a sinner and that they, they know they can't save themselves and they know they don't deserve to enter in relationship with you, but that they come trusting in Jesus this morning, I pray nothing will keep them from embracing the relationship that you want to have with them. And Lord, you've also spoken to some others about idols in their lives today. And they may need to come and do business with you, God to come and quietly, using these steps as an altar, come and say, God, I've got idols. And I want to get up from there and walk away from them and put them in the rearview mirror. And God, if they need to do that, don't let pride or, or anything else keep them from that act of humble contrition. Lord God, there may be some who need a church home, a place to belong, a place to connect, a place to, to grow and to serve. And Lord, if you're calling them to be part of this church, this, this local body called Grace Fellowship, then Lord, bring them this morning. Whatever it is that we need to do today, Lord, give us what we need to respond. And don't let us hold back. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.